quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to be in the minds of the brokers, the shortest distance between them and the next house payment. So they know where to come to get the deal done. And I want them to know that the minute the deal is signed, they're going to get a commission check. So just generally speaking, being the easiest person to do business with. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Louis Belmonte. Louis is joining us from San Francisco, California. He is a founding partner of Seven Hills Properties. They are developers who have built a portfolio of $150 million in assets over the last 20 years. Louis' portfolio consists of retail, industrial, and multifamily. Louis, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? Couldn't be better. We're glad to have you. Louis, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Well, I spent 40 years working for various development organizations, building, managing, buying, selling, leasing warehouse buildings. So I did warehouse buildings all over the United States, Mexico, Singapore, Japan, My last job was with the predecessor of Prologis, the industrial REIT that now owns 1.2 billion square feet worldwide. I was one of the founding partners of the predecessor company. And in 2004, I retired from corporate life because I was getting too old to be an international road warrior. And that's when we founded Seven Hills, which does low-income multifamily, neighborhood retail, and we have one little industrial deal. Louis, did you ever think that industrial would be as hot as it is today? I did my first industrial lease in 1970, and the rent was six cents per square foot per month net. It's now probably six cents per square foot per minute, not per month. (laughs) And uh, the, the rents stunned me. The cost of buildings stunned me. The employer I worked for in 1970 was building buildings all in, land and building for $5 a foot. The last warehouse transaction I participated in, I managed one of those buildings for many, many years for a family. They sold the building, which was not in the best of shape, for $225 a foot. When they asked me what to do, I said, I have no idea where these prices come from. Just take the money and run. Yeah, you know what's crazy is some of our retail buildings, if we can't fill vacancies, we'll lease it out as industrial space because it's so hot and there so will in be demand. More of that. I think the average Kmart or Sears may turn into a fulfillment center for e-commerce before it's over, return merchandise. We're going to have some kind of hybrid stuff, especially since cities are now trying to outlaw warehouse construction. A whole lot of things are going to be converted to industrial that used to be something else. It's going to be a little hard with office space, but most everything else is subject to conversion. Louis, I got to ask you, with all of this knowledge and experience in industrial, why not go back into it? Why pivot into multifamily? 
Well, among other things, I have a lot of stock in PLD. So in terms of my own personal portfolio, I've got plenty of exposure to industrial space and I'm an investor in their Europe fund. So in terms of building a retirement plan, I'm overmatched in industrial. So that's number one. Number two, industrial and office are assets that are not appropriately owned by individuals because when they're vacant, they're vacant and there's nothing you can do about it. Mostly my personal stuff is multifamily because low leverage multifamily, in my view, is the safest kind of investment for an individual because the worst that can happen is you lower the rents. There's always enough demand there, except maybe in Houston in 1980 where they were bulldozing buildings, but there's almost always enough demand that you can fill your space up at some price, make your debt service, pay your operating expenses. On the other hand, if you've got an empty warehouse, you're up against it. In soft markets, there's nobody to talk to. And the same thing with office space. You can stand there and stare at it for a long time and get eaten alive. So I think both of those asset classes are best built and owned by institutional investors who are not against it time-wise, who can wait to sell into good markets, who can wait out a soft tenant market. And that's why I personally am not doing warehouse buildings at the moment. Louis, if you saw a flex space or a smaller industrial building for sale, would the cowboy, that old road warrior inside of you, want to take that down? Absolutely. Multi-tenant industrial. My partners and I have made offers on numerous properties, and we've just never gotten one at the right price. But if one came along at the right price, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. They don't call me Lowball Louie for nothing, although when I work for Prologis, they ask me not to say that. But if the price is right, I'm a buyer. And if the price yeah, is seen, I'm a seller. All right, good. So you haven't really hung up your hat permanently on no, industrial. It's just a matter of finding a deal that makes good economic sense in a soft market. Real estate is not about making money in a rising market. A gorilla can make money in a rising market. The question is, what do you do in a falling market? If you've got multi-tenant industrial catering to subcontractors and tile companies and people like that, and your leverage isn't too high, you can live through a soft market because it's not all going to come vacant at the same time. Yeah. What was your pivot into multifamily? When was that? Well, I started my career in multifamily in 1967 when I got out of Vietnam. I went to work at a corporate job, which I didn't like, and the work was boring and the pay was piss poor. And I was living with a friend of mine from high school who was upside down in a little multifamily rehab. And I said, if you'll pay me $3 an hour, I will strap on my tool belt and help you get this job finished so you don't lose your investment. And subsequently, he and I formed a little company and did a few rehab deals. And some of those I still own. And I've always owned multifamily. My father was the son of an Italian peasant. We believe in real estate. He owned rentals. It's just something that's in my DNA to own residential rentals because I think it's a steady market. And unless you're in an area that's declining in population, it's pretty hard to go wrong. And if you're a person who likes fewer moving parts, it's a pretty straightforward business. Louis, with all of your development experience, have you developed multifamily or has it always been buying existing properties? I've done lots of rehabs. My partner and I have built 502 units of low-income multifamily in the Bay Area. 
I've participated in a few other development deals, but those are two big development deals. We have looked at numerous others, but once again, we can't find numbers that work. And I refuse to build with an exit anticipation of a four cap or a three and a half cap or some number that makes my nose bleed. So I think that uh, development into those kind of numbers is highly risky. So if I could get a seven or eight percent return reasonably projected on a multifamily development deal, I'd do it in a heartbeat. The next time I ask you a question that starts with, have you done, just cut me off and say yes. <laughs> the, the answer is I've worked on everything except regional malls and hotels. So if it's planted in the ground, I've probably managed it or financed it or built it or leased it or at least spit on it. Louis, we have an army of newer investors out there who've only seen a rising tide. Anybody under the age of 33 has never really seen hard times or even a downward cycle. What are your thoughts on the current market and for all of those investors that have not seen hard times? Well, the things to look for are this. The three things that kill real estate are excess supply, excess leverage, and a liquidity crunch. And right now, one way or another, we got all of those things going on. So it's time to watch your ass. And attempting to catch a falling knife is really tough. So anytime you're doing real estate, you need to say, what happens if? And go back through and look at the history of the performance of the asset and the location in a recession and see how bad it can get and say, I need to structure my deal so that I can live through that experience. In the immortal words of my ex-boss at Prologis, Hamid Moganam, big money in real estate is made by those who have cash when nobody else does. So if you're thinking about investing in real estate, get your cash together, get your investors together, and wait till cap rates readjust, and then do a pro forma that says, what happens if I go 20% vacant, or interest rates go up 200 basis points, or ex-tenants default? and say, if I can live through that, then this is a good deal and I should get into it. Great advice. And I think that's been lost over the last decade is stress testing deals because well, the numbers but, have always gone up. People aren't stress testing deals and they think that 2% or zero inflation adjusted interest rates are the norm. And in about 1988, I was working for a company and I was doing business with Principal Financial Group and they had a deal where we were partners together and we were on a floating loan doing the deals and we could fix into one of their funds anytime. And I fixed $100 million of debt at 10% because we were fully convinced we'd never see single digit interest rates again. And I wasn't hanging out on a limb my bosses, my partners were badgering me to make sure that we had the fix in at 10% on $100 million. And we truly believed we'd never see single-digit interest rates again. And what happened was that the world's central banks started stepping on rates, and they did so in concert because their biggest customers are governments, and governments are the biggest borrowers. So obviously, they're interested in low interest rates. So am I, but I've never been in a position as a borrower to set my own interest rates. I wish I had been. But now that's coming apart because once inflation sets in, you can't hold it. 
so that strategy works until it stops, and it is now stopped. And I stood behind podiums for a good 10 years, waving my arms, saying, inflation-adjusted interest rates are artificially low, money's on sale, borrow now before it's too late, go fixed, go long. And I turned out to be wrong every time until now, but I'm right eventually. And taking time bomb in our marketplace is loan rollover because leverage that made sense at three or four makes no sense at six or seven. And when rates move 300 basis points and when all the lenders are being told by the regulators to cut down their exposure to commercial real estate, you're going to have lower valuations, lower loan to value, higher debt service coverage, higher interest rates, and you're going to get 50 cents on the dollar of your existing loan when you roll it over. It is a loudly ticking time bomb. And people who are new to the business have just never seen anything like this. And it's going to be really ugly, in my view, especially in the office sector. Louis, are you positioning yourself to be cash rich and have a lot of dry powder to deploy when that happens? The last 36 months, we rolled over every loan in our system to get it out as far as we could. And we had excess proceeds on some of the loans. We rattled that money. We renewed our lines of credit. We cultivated some investors because we have a few deals with outside investors in them, a small circle of people. So we're sitting here. We have one deal that we've just agreed on, little deal in Bend, Oregon. And we're waiting for cap rates to readjust, and we are ready to spring like cheetahs on the market if prices become rational. Because as Hamid said, big money in real estate is made by those who have cash when nobody else does. So I'm holding money as fast as I can because I think that there is a possibility that deals will be there that make good economic sense. Are you going to try to catch a falling knife or are you just waiting for numbers to make sense? I'm all about a number that makes sense. Can I flow cash at a risk adjusted rate? So I'm looking at a deal and saying, what rate of return makes sense based on leasing risk, the rehab risk, the financing risk, whatever? How much risk can I eliminate from the situation in terms of building permit? fixing a loan, all that stuff. And then we get down to leasing risk. And I say, okay, what's the leasing risk I have here in terms of the supply and demand dynamics? And if the resulting number meets my yield threshold for a deal of that risk level, which is the tough number to come up with, then you do the deal. And don't worry about the falling knife. The market can get worse. But if I'm still making money at my target yield, I don't give a rat's ass. Do you have a preference on what asset class you would look for when the deals start to make sense? So you'll take down anything. The only consideration is if I'm dealing in an asset class with which I'm unfamiliar, the rate of return has to go up because I'm going to pay a stupid tax. So if I buy a trailer park, which we tried to do once or twice, then I need to have a higher rate of return because I know that I don't know everything about trailer parks and we'll screw something up. So we got to have more room in the deal to pay the stupid tax. If you buy an asset class that you're not familiar with, we've interviewed people from every single asset class. Email me, call me. I will put you in touch with somebody to reduce your stupid tax. (laughs) Thank you. Well, 
I also have cultivated a couple of people who own a lot of trailer parks that I can talk to because I'm a great believer in finding an expert in areas where I don't know anything. And I will say when I was working for the predecessor of Prologis, we were doing deals all over the country and all over the world. And in every case, we went into the market with a local partner because we never figured that we were smart enough to handle the local politics or the local customs or deal with the local contractors. So I am a great believer in reaching out to someone who's an expert in whatever market I'm trying to get into. And for the record, Prologis is the number one or number two developer in the world and one of the biggest landlords. uh, Prologis was doing $4 billion a year of new deals which is one of the reasons that I'm not there. When I was there, I was doing 400 million and they wanted to really ramp it up and I was getting old. So they've cut back based on the way things are going now, but that was their run rate. They own 1.2 billion square feet. They are the 68th largest company in the S&P 500. And we started out with zero. When I was there, we were an advisor to institutions and we were running about 50 million feet. So their growth has been absolutely phenomenal, stunning. Yeah, we've done a deal with them. They are phenomenal to work with. Louis, when did you start raising money for your own deals? Well, when I first started in the business, it was just the money I saved up from combat pay in Vietnam. I knew nothing about raising money. Then I went to work for Dan Overmeyer, who's a New York developer, and he basically was bamboozling insurance companies to lending him more money than he was spending. And he had a set of plans to build buildings. He only had one set of plans and he cut every corner imaginable. He was on the cutting edge of the building code everywhere. And then he went broke in 73. Then I went to work for Lincoln Property Company and we were in the tax evasion business. So we had Wall Street firms, tax lawyers, people syndicating deals. And basically we were selling tax write-offs and it was my job to make the real estate work that produced the tax write-offs and to try and make sure the investors didn't lose their investment. But we were in the inflation business and the tax write-off business. So that's what we were selling. And that was the money raising. In, in 1983, they passed the Tax Reform Act, which Donald Trump in the only genuinely 100% true statement he ever made, described it as going through the windshield. Every developer in America was broke because we were all highly leveraged because interest created write-off. So the whole world changed. And then the institutions took over the business. The developers were all put out of business and we all became lackeys for the money, private equity, insurance companies, Blackstone, whoever. So little developers like me who can raise their own money and money from individuals are still in the development business. Everybody else is simply a service provider for money. And we used to call things a neutron mortgage that destroyed the borrower, but left the property intact. So I've seen money move completely over the course of my career and how it's raised. And I was once at a ULI meeting where a big time insurance guy who ran their real estate division, pointed at me and he said, you see Belmonte sitting down there in the first row, spent his entire career trying to get in front of the big wave of money appropriately dressed. And I was about to scream an insult at him, but I decided he was right. That's what I'd done. So you watch how the money moves. And once I went to work on the institutional side, it kind of changed my view of 
the whole fundraising endeavor. And I decided that money raising and investment management was a completely separate business from actual real estate operations. And the reason that we have a small company that does one deal at a time is I don't particularly enjoy institutional side of the business. It's not my wheelhouse and I like doing deals. So if I'm doing little deals, then they're my deals. If I'm doing big deals, I'm a lackey for the money. And that's what it gets down to. I like to say every deal is a million dollar deal. If I do a million dollar deal, it's my deal. If I do a hundred million dollar deal, I own 1% of it. So it's all a million dollar deal. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez. 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets. We'll be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off. Off your tickets. That's MFINCon.com. It's become a sport to raise money for deals today. And here well, you it's, are. It's all about portfolio management. It's all about understanding the investor's mentality, the, their investment philosophy, their investment plan, their personalities. And that's just not me. I'm a street dog. And last book is called Street Dog MBA because that's where I am. I'm out in the gutter, which is where I belong and where I feel comfortable. And my partners and I like to be the low-cost producer. We're in the low-income housing business in San Francisco. Our building is 100% occupied where all the market rate people are having a hard time and giving away free rent because we provide clean, safe, affordable housing So we're getting business when everybody else is getting a lot less business. I'm the same way with retail. I want to be able to have the lowest rent in town and still make money. Louis, is that a book that you've written, Street Dog MBA? Street Dog MBA. Well, the two that are fairly current are Real Estate 101 and Street Dog MBA, both available on Amazon, very reasonably priced. I'm buying that after this call. 
I want to circle back to something we started talking about earlier. You mentioned how governments and central banks, it behooves them to keep interest rates lower. And one thing that nobody's really talking about is sovereign debt and the payment on those sovereign debts. What's going to happen with that? I mean, the interest that we're paying. For every 100 basis point increase in rates flowing through the system, the government of the United States is going to owe an extra $310 billion a year for every 100 basis points. And rates have gone up 300 basis points. And the doofuses in Washington, in order to minimize debt service, went as short as they possibly could the last few years when they could have issued 30-year money at 1.5%. They were offering 90-day money and one-year money at a little less in order to make the numbers look better. And they should have been going 30 every time for the last few years or more. And instead they went short and now it's gonna bite them in the ass. And it's happening all over the world. We have way too much government debt and government debt is growing faster than the economies are growing, which is the death loop. And we are going to lose our status as the reserve currency, which is a massive advantage if we don't watch our step. And the only reason it hasn't already happened is that the almighty dollar is the tallest midget. (laughs) I love it. Here's a question for my own personal interest. Historically, during these recessions, has the pain traveled across the entire population? Because right now there's still so much money on the sidelines. And is the recession not really going to hit until even those people feel pain? Well, I think the real estate markets are going to have a problem, but it's probably not going to affect anybody else. If the office building at the corner of Maine and Maine is owned by the lender instead of the institution that paid too much money for it or the private equity player that paid too much money for it, the person on the street isn't going to see much going on. Now, in San Francisco, where the financial district is empty, it hurt a lot of small businesses that were in the financial district servicing the office workers. But for the most part, transfer of ownership to lenders is not going to make that much difference. And the government now is, of course, backstopping everything so that it's probably not going to crater, but they're just fueling inflation by doing so and creating moral hazard by doing so, which is storing up problems for the future. But I'm not sure we're even going to have a recession because the labor force is starting to shrink. So there's still more job openings than applicants right now. So at least in the immediate future, I don't see a recession. I think there will be a lot of pain in the real estate sector. But that means that somebody who worked for the developer then goes to work as a workout specialist for the lender. There's still a job there because there's still a building. So, yes, there's a ton of money sitting on the sidelines, but I think it's going to hesitate to come into real estate because we've got supply pipeline issues, except in industrial where there's a little bit of an issue that will quickly cure itself. There's a little bit of sublet developing. There's a whole lot of space in the pipeline. But by 12 months from now, that pipeline will have dried up and righted itself. But there's a big apartment pipeline. 
There's already too much retail office spaces, obviously. The demand has dropped by 20% or so. So we're going to have some turmoil, but I don't think it necessarily communicates to the rest of the world, like the bankruptcy of Lehman and the subprime and all that stuff. Thank you for sharing that perspective. You mentioned low-income housing that you've developed in San Francisco, one of the most expensive areas to build. How does low-income housing make sense? Is it subsidized by the government? Oh, absolutely. Layers and layers of subsidies. So one way or another, you've got to have 50 or 60 or 70% of the cost covered by you, the taxpayer. And my partners and I deeply appreciate your help. We really do. (laughs) Is it as profitable as doing value-add multifamily? Probably not, but it's less risky and requires less capital. So if you're a small-time developer trying to operate with your own capital, you can get into it for less money. So we have a 257-unit SRO in San Francisco. It took about a million dollars of front money to do the deal, all of which we got back when we were able to close and get the tax credits to fund and all of that stuff. So we have, in effect, a zero investment in the deal, just a lot of sweat. And we're now on the 25th or 26th year of ownership of that project. And it's now quite profitable. But the first few years, we struggled and grunted and groaned and made the debt service and got it done. Same thing in San Jose. We got 245 units there. Our front money was less in that project because we got better at pulling the levers. And our partner is the housing department of the city of San Jose. And we got tax credit investors and all kinds of layers And again, in the beginning, we made some fees, but it wasn't particularly profitable, but we're now 10, 12 years into it and it throws off good cash flow. So you got to be more patient, but if you're a small time operator and you are able to navigate the politics, which are horrendous. So in San Francisco, we actually had to get a law passed to alter the zoning code in order to build our building. We had more bureaucratic input And we went through a competition at the state level to get awarded the tax credits. It's a political minefield. But if you're prepared to learn how to do it, it's an okay business. But you better not be in a hurry. You ain't getting rich. Well, the first book I wrote, which I don't recommend reading, I got better at writing after a while, (laughs) is Get Rich Slowly, Invest in Real Estate. And that's especially true with low-income housing. Interesting. I've never heard this before. So thank you for sharing that. What's your last multifamily deal that you've done? That San Jose deal. We haven't done anything since then. We've basically been working on small-scale retail in Oregon since then. We were a merchant builder for Walgreens, and we ended up with a lot of land associated with our Walgreens deals that we've gradually built out, and we've done a few more retail deals since then. So part of our focus today is retail in Oregon. So you mentioned retail's overbuilt, but there's still spots where it's profitable. Yes. Again, you got to buy it right. We built a deal that we just completed that should have been a good deal in Eugene, Oregon, and we had it pre-leased, but the construction costs went up so badly that it turned out to be a break-even deal. But it gets back to my other point. We had enough space in the deal to come out whole. It's not a deal that I'm going to brag about because it has a little cash flow, but not much and not nearly enough to compensate for the risk but it had enough room that we got through the experience, even though we had a 50% overrun on the cost because the construction costs went through the roof. Louis, after all these years in real estate and in business and in development, what's one of the hardest lessons that you've learned? 
One of the hardest lessons I've learned is to be wary of the herd. When everybody's going one direction, you got to scratch your head and say, something's going on here. The the tendency of developers is they want to get bigger. They want to get flashier. When I worked for Lincoln Property Company, we started out doing industrial and suburban office space. And by the time it all came unglued, we were building high rises. And I never was in that part of the business, but there's a tendency to want to be a big dog and take yourself seriously and get your picture in the paper with your arm around your architect and all that crap. And the important thing is to avoid all of that, to stay humble, to keep your head down, to keep your visibility low. The only reason I want visibility is as a leaser of space. I want to be known as the guy to bring your deal to because it'll get done. I want to be famous in the part of the brokerage community that actually gets deals done. That's the only place I want to be famous. Other than that, I want to be invisible. You just want to stay a street dog. Yeah. Well, in the high-rise condo of life, I don't want to be in the penthouse. I want to be three floors down with a decent view and no mortgage. And no one knows your name. And I don't have to put my name on the plaque in front. Yeah. You know, just I'm unit 1023. Louis, you mentioned lease-ups. Are you a broker today? I have a broker's license, but I've never collected a commission. Because a long time ago when I had a corporate position, The lawyers told me I had to get a license, so I got one. And now in California, if you're old enough and you've been a broker long enough, you don't have to take continuing education courses. You just have to send money. So I'm still a broker. You mentioned, I want to be known as a guy that provides the lease ups. What are you leasing up? Your own buildings or other people's? My own, our own building. Got it. Got it. Yeah. We don't do leases for other people. No. What's your secret to getting retail tenants? Well, Your secret always is to be the path of least resistance in any situation. So when I was doing industrial space, as an example, if you wanted a lease under two years, I had a one-page document that was all in the English language. You could read it and sign it on the spot if your truck was on the road. I want the space in pristine condition so you don't have to do anything to move in. I want a lawyer that's a deal maker, not a deal killer. I want to have a complete grip on where the market rents are so that my rent is slightly less than the competing space, unless I decide that the competing space needs to go off the market because it's so cheap Then I want you to go there and I'll take the next tenant. I want to be in the minds of the brokers, the shortest distance between them and the next house payment. So they know where to come to get the deal done. And I want them to know that the minute the deal is signed, they're going to get a commission check. So just generally speaking, being the easiest person to do business with. Yeah. Best ever listeners, you should rewind that last 30 seconds. That is incredible advice. So thank you so much for that, Louie. Louie, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. All right, Louie, what's the best ever book you recently read? The best ever book I recently read is The Power Broker by Carol, The Life of Robert Moses. What was your big takeaway from that? It's a dissection of the nature of political and bureaucratic power. And if you're a a developer on the coast, it's all about the politics. Interesting. Louis, what's the best ever way you like to give back? 
I work for a recovery facility where we help people who are addicted to alcohol and drugs if they decide that they want to stop doing that. I've been doing it for quite a few years, and I'm deeply interested in that and find it very rewarding. And I'm, I've been on the board of directors for years, and I'm the designated hard ass when there's a legal problem or an insurance fight or something like that. That's where I try and help out. Louis, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? L Belmonte at 7hp.com, the number 7hotelpapa.com. Louis, this was an amazing conversation. First, thank you for your service and sacrifice in the military. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us today, years of experience. I'm going to listen to this a number of times because I know you dropped so many good nuggets of advice. I can't wait to read Street Dog MBA. Thank you for your time. You're more than welcome. Best wishes to you. Give them hell. I'll tell you what, we touched on the surface of a lot of different topics. If you ever want to come back and deep dive maybe into a development or a lesson learned or whatever it is, use the same link that you have. Love to deep dive into something with you. Well, I give you a thought. I'm doing a course for a professor at Stanford in a couple of months, and he asked me to talk about our response to COVID. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about what we did to try and survive during COVID in terms of making accommodations for unexpected events. So that might be an interesting topic. And I've given it enough thought and I'm going to be doing notes on that so I could do something with you that I think might be of interest. Let's brainstorm. I am a commercial retail industrial investor as well, active landlord, so we could share war stories. It'll be mostly you teaching and me learning, but love to do it. Well, one aspect of that is bankruptcy because we had some tenants go bankrupt and I've had quite a bit of experience in the bankruptcy court over the years dealing with deadbeat tenants and I've worked as an expert in a bankruptcy court. So that's something where I can communicate some knowledge to your listeners that might be useful, how to prepare yourself in the event you have a tenant goes bankrupt and how to operate in the whole tribal bankruptcy scene. I think that can be incredibly valuable. I will take you up on that. Thank you so much for offering that. You got it. All right. Good luck to you. Thank you. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.